Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Mosercast, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today, we are coming live from the Maple Spring. We are in the protest right now. We are walking and talking. My co-host, Justin Ritchie, is right next to me. That's right, Seth. We have been in Montreal at the International DeGrowth Conference of the Americas. And it has been a fantastic time getting to do video interviews with so many amazing thinkers in the realm of sustainability, the biggest crises facing our civilization at the moment. And we are going to be bringing you video interviews over the next few weeks as we release these to some of our most respected thinkers on these issues like Charles Hall on Net Energy, Bill Rees on overpopulation and cognitive maps. It's been a really great time here. That's right, Justin. And as we mentioned, Extra Environmentalist, which has been a audio podcast for about two years now, is moving into video. And that means you, you get to not only hear the excellent guests that we have on the show, but now you get to actually see them, which is a great thing, I would say. Absolutely. But for today, you're going to have to be okay with listening because we're speaking about the film Surviving Progress, which is actually, conveniently, from Montreal Director. That's right. And we're going to be talking with two of those guys who are making the film, as well as Ronald Wright. Yes, Ronald Wright uh, wrote the book Short History of Progress a few years ago, and then he did a series of massy lectures around Canada speaking to crowds of hundreds of people about the challenges of civilizational collapse. And the film was originated with Ronald's idea. And so first we're going to be speaking with Ronald Wright, and then following up with Matthew and Harold, who wrote and, and directed the film. That's right, Justin. So without any further ado, let's jump right into the show. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist from the streets of Montreal. And today, we're speaking with Ronald Wright about his surviving progress. So, Ronald Wright, thanks for joining us from the Gulf Islands in British Columbia today to talk about the film Surviving Progress, which is now in release across the U.S., um, and I've seen it here twice in Canada now. 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I, I've seen it probably three or four times more than you have. <laughs> <laughs> in, in starting to talk about uh, some of the ideas that are in the film Surviving Progress, one of the first questions that we had for you was, let's say there's another intelligent species and they're coming down to the human race and they're starting to talk to us about our history to try to figure out what's been going on. And so this intelligent species asks you to deliver a short summary of the human race. What would you say to them? I would say to them that we humans are very clever, but seldom wise. What do you, what do you mean by that? What, why are they not wise? Well, because we don't seem to learn from our mistakes. I mean, just the other day I was reading about the part of Japan where this terrible tsunami happened, you know, wiping out the Fukushima reactor and so forth. And all around those parts of Japan are stone markers some of them 10 feet high, which was set up centuries ago. I think the oldest one is, is 600 years old. And it says, remember the great catastrophe. Do not build below this level. Now, this was set up by the Japanese emperors in the past, warning people not to go lower because sooner or later another tsunami would come. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody paid any attention. We always think we're exempt from the rules of history. We always think we're going to be lucky. That's why we're not wise. I've listened to your Massey lectures, and that's a theme that comes back again and again, is the fact that civilization seems to forget the lessons of the past over and over and over and over. And you know, even in our regular day lives, we forget you know, what happened to our parents' generation. Why is this, this forgetfulness so a part of being human? Part of it is cultural, uh, uh, that especially since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the great speeding up of technology. Since that, we in the West have become a, a culture focused on the future. You know, we, we are not looking back nearly as much as we're looking ahead. So we're rather like a ship sailing without a rudder with uh, everyone looking forwards and not backwards. So that's one thing. But also, I think it's deeper than that. I think it, it, it is rooted in our evolutionary past that, you know, we developed over millions of years as hunters. And we're extremely good at mobilizing ourselves for short-term effort and solving immediate problems or, say, escaping from a, from a lion, you know, flight or fight kicks in right away. We're good at all that. But we're not good at the long-term planning. And and proof of that is what I call progress traps, the first of them being when our hunter ancestors in most parts of the world ruined hunting as a way of life by overkill. And so you mentioned the idea of progress traps, and that's definitely something that comes to play quite a few times in the film Surviving Progress and in your Massey lectures. And I'm wondering what are some good examples of progress traps. You, you gave the one about the hunters. Do you have any others? Oh, well, there are many. A simple one that we can all um, relate to is, is weaponry. You know, when you, when you go from a stone arrow to a, a steel one, or you, uh, you go from a bow and arrow to a rifle, you've made technological progress that enables you to both kill animals and other people much better. But when you get to the point that you've invented atomic weapons and um, germ weapons, then you've fallen into a progress trap because you've invented something that could wipe everyone out. Quite clearly, as weaponry getting better and better and better is a good idea only up to a certain point. That is what's true of most of these things. Another much older example, after um, hunters had pretty much hunted out the big game in most parts of the world, 
the survivors of that uh, catastrophe, that food crisis, gradually developed farming. And after a few more thousand years, you get the early civilizations developing. And, and the, one of the first in the world was the Sumerians in what is now southern Iraq. And if you look at those the pictures from that area, you probably remember them from the, the recent war there, you know, the place is a desert. It's brown, it's dry, it's dusty, and it's salty. And there are pictures of these ancient temples and, and palaces and towns just standing in this dusty, salty desert. And that is the result of a progress trap. When those cities were thriving, the place was green and it was extensively irrigated. And the Sumerians effectively invented irrigation in that area and it worked very well for them for a while. But after about a thousand years, the evaporation of the water had concentrated salt in the ground and they found that their yields were falling. They had to change the salt resistant crops and when that no longer worked, the civilization came crashing down. So, so the very thing that was the secret of its success was its undoing in the end. That is a classic progress trap. You said in, your, in one of your talks that each time history repeats itself, the price goes up. And that's a very interesting concept because as civilizations reemerge after a destruction of an old one, they come back again. They have to put more resources into making into making that culture the same or better than they were. Could you delve a little bit deeper into, into the how that works? I agree with what you just said. And of course, the other thing is that as the overall experiment of civilization gets more complex and there are more people wielding more powerful technologies and the risks from those technologies become greater. Uh, actually, that, that expression, every time history repeats itself, the price goes up, was, was a graffiti, uh, <laughs> I think, that I saw somewhere. But it struck me as being right on the money because essentially it's saying, you know, each time we, we increase our numbers and we have more powerful technologies, we are taking on greater risks. And there is also less room for recovery, less unspoiled land, less places to go after each failure, because the overall scale of these experiments gets bigger all the time. And you mentioned our technology, and earlier we were talking about how we started out as hunter-gatherers, and now we live in these complex cities with complex energy and material flows where I can walk down the street here in Vancouver, and just right at the corner, I can go and buy something that was made uh, half the world away. And in some ways, that's really amazing. Should we be commending ourselves as a species for what we've been able to accomplish? Well, yeah, I mean, we have accomplished a lot of really impressive things. And, and my purpose in, in writing um, A Short History of Progress was not to sort of say civilization's a bad thing, let's give up on it. And my purpose was to say it's a very precious thing and it's a very fragile thing. So let's be careful. We're, we're reaching a very critical stage. Let's try and see far ahead and follow the precautionary principle and try to put this on a long-term stable basis so that we can go on enjoying this way of life. That doesn't mean that we should continue having sort of senseless levels of consumption in, in the, uh, the rich countries and, and, and terrible le uh, levels of poverty in the poor ones. You know, I'm not saying we should continue going as we are. We need to correct things like that. We need to correct overconsumption. We probably need to do something about overpopulation. Or in fact, we almost certainly do, but that's a very tricky one, and that would take a lot of sensitivity and intelligent planning to achieve. But in the long run, it probably must be achieved um, in order to have a number number of people on this planet who can all live well, all live a civilized life, assuming they want to, and do so without exhausting the natural resources and poisoning the atmosphere and the oceans. But it does seem that in every civilization that has emerged 
on this planet that a concentration of wealth at the top leads to the preservation of the status quo. So the change becomes even harder. You know, even as we see this huge tsunami bearing down on our current civilization, we're powerless to stop it because the status quo is just so ingrained in what we, in our everyday lives. Well, I think the, uh, that we are, in effect, victims of our own human nature. And we are also victims of the social structure and the, sort of the momentum that a particular culture and social system has. And it's sometimes been called the runaway train problem. You know, it is extremely hard to stop a huge, complex social organism in its tracks and turn it around. In fact, it's impossible. It, has to, it can only be done gradually. But what makes it extra difficult is that the people who still benefit from the system, the elites, as you mentioned, the powerful and wealthy people at the top of the social pyramid, those people are very resistant to change because they fear losing their power, losing their money, and they fear revolution. And so they tend to dig in and say, look, there's nothing wrong with the system. In fact, the only thing we need to do is to keep on doing what we've always done, but do it better. And you see this pattern, I think you can see it nowadays, uh, particularly the right wing. You can see it in the uh, political program, particularly of the Republican Party in, in the United States and of the uh, Conservative Party here in Canada. But you also see it in these ancient civilizations. You know, if you, if you go to the, the greatest city ever built by the ancient Maya, the city of Tikal in Guatemala. That's a city that was lived in for a long time. I, I, if memory serves, it was occupied for 1,500 or 2,000 years. But almost all the really big, impressive pyramids that are there now were built in the last 100 years. So in this city that lasted for millennia, there was this great surge at the end. And along with these Great pyramids. You can see the elite trying to bolster its power. You get far more images of the kings. You get a lot more sort of militarism showing up in the sculptures. And you also get the um, royalty using these pyramids, which had been public temples, using them as private tombs, which was a new thing for the Maya. So you can see that entrenchment. You know, they're saying, no, there's nothing wrong. You know, okay, the peasants are starving, but that just means they need to work harder. You know? So every time these these concentrations of power happen in civilization, it seems that we just get stuck in another progress trap or another kind of culture trap. Is there a way to have a civilization that doesn't form one of these concentrations of wealth at the top or concentrations of power at the top and allow the flexibility that seems to be so needed in a civilization? Is, there, is that even a possible model? Well, it's a very desirable model, and it is really the model that we have to uh, to work on now if we're going to keep this experiment of civilization going. This is where we have to go. There have been social experiments around the world where this has worked at least for a time, and also, of course, in small-scale societies, such as the, the hunter-gatherer societies that either still exist or existed until very recently, uh, you can see a much more egalitarian social structure. You also see people actually having to work less to make a living in, in most of these cultures. The people in the Kalahari work about half the length of time per week that uh, people in agricultural or industrial societies do, and they have a broad range of foods. Because they're hunter-gatherers, it's very difficult. They're always moving around. So it's very difficult for an elite to concentrate power and property in one place. And once you move into agricultural and, and especially industrial societies, of course, it becomes much more difficult. But we've seen many attempts to reform this process. I mean, the French Revolution, 
the uh, American Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Mexican Revolution, all of these revolutions, and the Communist Revolution in China in the 1940s, all of these revolutions were attempts to redistribute wealth and power. In the short run, some of them succeeded, and sometimes they succeeded in creating a new and more flexible uh, and more resilient uh, social structure. But in the long run, there has been a tendency for the power to find its way into fewer and fewer hands. Although I think that is much more true in the United States than it is in France. Both countries who had revolutions at about the same time, both extremely bloody and pervasive revolutions, not just sort of minor coups, but, you know, revolutions that convulsed those whole countries. And yet France has a social democracy in which the idea of redistributing the fruits of capitalism through taxation is not considered something abhorrent as it is to most of the rich and powerful in the United States. And I'm wondering what it is about human nature that drives for this power for reaching this pinnacle, you know, the Tower of Babel comes to mind, all of our technological progress. It's like we're reaching for something and we haven't been able to attain it. Why do you think power is such a drive of human nature? Well, I think the drive to power very often originates in fear, in the uncertainties of existence by exercising some control over nature by, say, saving water through a dry season to keep for a wet season, we feel that we are using power to make ourselves safer. And that same psychology seems to apply to elites forming nations and particularly empires. Uh, you look at most empires, very many of them expand extremely quickly after that particular social group, which may have been in the beginning just a small tribe or city-state, is threatened by outsiders and there's a crisis, there's a battle with their neighbors in the next valley, and they win, and then they just keep going because that seems to them to be a good idea. They appropriate the land and the wealth of the people they've conquered, and then that, of course, strengthens them. And then, you know, you can see this is what happened with the Romans, what happened with the Aztecs. Suddenly, these people are um, taking over large parts of the world, and I think they believed it makes them safer. Of course, it also makes them more prosperous in the short term. But in the long run, empires don't work. In the long run, the law of diminishing returns cuts in the costs of maintaining the system and holding down your disgruntled people that you're exploiting uh, eventually become greater than the wealth that you can accumulate. And we're, you know, we've seen that with the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, we're, we're now seeing it with the American Empire. Well, it seems to me that there is this innate want or desire in humanity to want to follow. Do you find that? Do you see that in studying civilizations? Do humans just basically want to follow somebody greater or have they want to put the issues of the day into somebody else to manage so they don't have to think about those things themselves? Well, I think that is definitely one of our flaws as a species that we we would much rather think that somebody else has the answers and most of us would, would, would sort of delegate our own autonomy uh, to have someone else clean up the mess or um, solve the problems or fight the enemies, whatever it happens to be. And you see that particularly, of course, in the, in, in the bigger social systems. Um, even in democracies, we delegate our power and in a way that very often leads to the effective loss of powers, as we've seen in Canada, where you know a, a, a minority can dominate the majority and because of our peculiar electoral system, can get away with it. So there's a sort of dog-like follow-the-leader thing. There's also... A religious impulse, I think, for a savior. I mean, in in many of the earlier civilizations, the leader, the guy at the top, the king, the emperor, was also a god or a demigod. I mean, the Romans actually deified their emperors, and so did many other societies. 
And this gives the people a belief that the ruler is in touch with heaven and therefore with the forces of nature and that this is going to guarantee them reliable rains, good crops, all of those things. Of course, it's all nonsense, but that religious impulse is something within us. Uh, we do not act as, as purely rational beings. We consider ourselves an intelligent species, but I suggest in the book that we're really only half evolved towards intelligence. We're actually in this kind of danger zone where we have these very primitive and archaic impulses to violence and fear and anger and worship and are really quite a long way from being the rational creatures that we like to imagine we are. You mentioned the Mayan city of Tikal, and I'm wondering what it would have felt like to the people who live there. How many people lived in the city? It's hard to get an exact figure, but I, I believe um, it would be something like 100,000 in, in the uh, urban core and half a million in the city-state. Uh, that was the last time I looked, but of course, mm-hmm. archaeological research is often changing these figures. Right. But uh, that is, doesn't sound big by modern standards, but that is actually quite a lot for an ancient city-state. And what do you think it was like for all of those people as Mayan civilization started falling apart? It did happen over several centuries, but do you think there was a certain point where everyone just was like, hey we're collapsing as a civilization, like a priest got on top of one of the temples and said, you know, we're falling apart, or, or what was it like? What did they do? Well, we can only infer what, what happened by the archaeological remains, because although they were a literate civilization who left inscriptions, they didn't leave They didn't leave the bad news. You know, the inscriptions all say that everything's fine and the king is talking to the gods and, and he's the greatest. You know, that's, that's essentially what inscriptions say in almost any ancient civilization, and the Maya are no different. But what we can see is is that the statues of some of these very same kings appear to have had fires lit around the base and they've been thrown face down or, or even the faces have been hacked off probably by revolutionary peasants rather than foreign enemies, although a great deal of warfare broke out towards the end too. And there's one site uh, where they actually have found barricades put up with stones that have been torn from the fronts of the temples to make a stockade for a kind of last stand. So clearly there was massive social unrest, uh, probably a combination of warfare and revolution. The Not only the rulers had lost prestige, but people were angry at them, and the gods seemed to have lost prestige since they were tearing down the temples in a desperation to uh, to keep out whoever their enemies were. However, I don't want to overemphasize the collapse of the civilization because what essentially happened was uh, it was a, a temporary setback. It was a collapse of a power structure. And certainly a lot of people lost their lives and some parts of the Maya region became depopulated and the jungle grew back, Tikal being the prime example. But the Maya civilization didn't end. It carried on in, in Highland Guatemala, carried on in, in Yucatan and there are still millions of Mayas around today who still speak their language and retain many elements of their culture, including the use of the ancient ritual calendar and so forth. So the Mayas aren't gone. They weren't erased from the earth by their folly, but but clearly a civilization at, 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 the, at a height of power and at a time when a great deal of power was concentrated into very few hands, that went through a very unpleasant collapse. It took, you know, 100, 150 years for, for these um, classic cities to fall silent one after another. You mentioned in your talk that as the old world starts investigating the new world, they come over on their ships and they find these ancient Mayan civilizations and they find these people that are living there. They're hit by this terrible, terrible disease. Smallpox just ravages the populations, just wipes out half the population in the first wave. So I was wondering, why is it that 
disease went from the old world to the new world and not the opposite way? Why didn't, did not the new world infect the old world with some disease? That's a very good question, and, and, and epidemiologists are still looking into that. Uh, there is a, one disease that seems to have gone the other way, and that is syphilis. But syphilis, even though when it first showed up in Europe in the late 1490s, was a, a very severe illness, much more severe than it is now. It uh, was not a mass killer on a par with smallpox, so it did not have the same social impact. And nor was Europe being invaded by nightmarish outsiders at the same time. But the smallpox was a mass killer and is a mass killer if it ever gets out again. It still does exist in a few labs around the world. And one theory that I've heard that uh, sounds plausible, but I, I'm not an expert, I'm not a medical expert, is that a lot of the diseases of the old world developed because people were living in close proximity with domestic animals such as pigs and chickens. And the New World had some domestic animals, but not pigs. And think of swine flu. That's one that definitely cycles through pigs and humans. And, of course, these diseases evolve and change over time, so it's hard to to document where they came from. But there seemed to have been uh, the Old World being bigger and having some very concentrated populations, particularly in Asia. A lot of the mass plagues, including the the Black Death that hit Europe in in the 14th century, seem to have originated in Asian cities, which are, you know, warm tropical environments, great place for diseases to thrive, people living very densely packed and living with animals, often in the same houses or with the animals downstairs, people upstairs, that kind of arrangement. Uh, You didn't have that kind of living arrangement in the New World and you had far fewer domestic animals. So that's one theory. But, you know, I don't think uh, anyone can say for sure why that was. It it was just very bad luck on the New World and and good luck for the Old World that the worst thing they got was syphilis. The power of film, the power of taking the ideas from your book, A Short History progress and from your Massey lectures and putting them in into a film like a surviving progress the power of that is that it can get big ideas out into the open and openly discussed and I'm wondering if you think that there's a way to have widespread discussions about the fate of human industrial civilization about our potential and our pathway towards collapse right now or are these ideas taboo a little while ago, they, they were um, taboo. They were considered to be the, the realm of cranks. But I mean, people have been warning about this stuff for a long time. I and mean, one of the things I mentioned in, in uh, Short History of Progress was, you know, these Victorian writers who we think of as kind of early science fiction writers, people like H.G. Wells, and, and then in the early 20th century, um, Aldous Huxley. Uh, in the mid-century, um, George Orwell writing nightmare futures, saying, look, this is the kind of thing that might happen if we're not careful. So people have been warning about it for quite a long time, ever since technological progress started to run away so that people actually felt it in the course of their own lives, the speed of change being, being great enough to, to actually detect it in, 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 in the human life, which is fairly short after all. Ever since that time, people have worried about it, but many of these people were dismissed as cranks or as just being hyperbolic and so forth. But I, I think that the climate of opinion is really changing. I, I, that we've seen uh, many um, books and films that have reached a wide audience. I mean, uh, an inconvenient truth uh, is one, uh, the corporation is another, and I think many people now realize, partly because the pace of change is 
speeding up all the time. And because the world really has been overrun by people and their machines, and more and more people are realizing that this this is not going to end well unless we take charge of it and 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 sort of say, we we got to we have to slow this down and we have to think where it's going and we have to come up with a way of managing it. And I, I think that's going to have to be done. It's a discussion that should be held worldwide and can only really be solved on a worldwide basis. I mean, we can we can do things locally that are really good things. We can you know recycle our garbage and we can compost and we can grow food, those who have a place to grow it and so forth. We can, locally, these efforts are valuable and we can do those. And, and I, I think people are doing that and that is change, helping to change attitudes. But also, we need a level playing field economically and legally at the international level so that a company can't go to some country where there's the cheapest sweatshop labor or the, the most polluted river and nobody cares. You know, the the regulations governing what you can do to the environment and what you can do to other human beings have to be the same everywhere. And I think that would, when we achieve that, this is something certainly that the United Nations and the European Union and other world bodies are trying to do. But when that is achieved, then we will see many of the worst aspects of globalization tend to mitigate because uh, people won't be able to get away with stuff like that. And there won't also be these sort of horrendously cheap labor countries where you can turn out tons of shoddy goods, sort of making things that last and things that are well-crafted by people who get well-paid. I kind of wanted to focus for a second on the, on the Massey lecture itself. Those lectures go on in Canada in a country that's very much like the United States that has, you know, same kind of demographics, similar population density in the major cities. The, the conversations that are going on surrounding those kind of lectures are very, very different than the kind of conversations that happen in the United States. Do you see a fundamental difference between the, the attitudes in those in the two countries? Well, I think, that, you know, you're right to say we share a, a, a lot of things in common, but there are some deep cultural differences. And I, I explored this in a later book, What is America? Where I was trying to understand why the United States actually is outside the mainstream of Western civilization these days. It's a place of very old-fashioned, rigid thinking. It's the only Western nation which has this incredibly devout population where something like half the population think the world was created more or less as described in Genesis. You know, you just don't find that in other Western countries. Uh, so it is an anomaly. The United States is an anomaly. It happens to be such a big country that we tend to be influenced by this much more than we should. I, I, I see it as a rather archaic white settler state. And one reason for its peculiar culture is because it broke away from the mother country much earlier. And a great deal of the American cultural attitudes were forged on the frontier in that sort of rolling war zone that rolled across the North American continent for two or three centuries from East until it hit the West. And that sort of xenophobia, that religious fanaticism, and that militarism are all characteristics of the frontier cultures. And, and, and I think, you know, some very influential American historians have, have argued this and, and um, would agree with this. Whereas Canada stayed hooked into the European powers longer. And I think in Canada, we have a social democracy that is closer, or at least until the present government took power, uh, was closer to that of the European countries and of Britain than to the American system. We don't have that national myth of endless plenty of just taking what whatever we need and dismissing the interests of the rest of the world uh, as being either irrelevant 
or a threat to our national autonomy. I mean, you know, you have American leaders saying, well, we can't sign onto a, an emissions agreement about carbon uh, dioxide because that's a threat to the American way of life. Ronald Reagan said the same thing when the law of the sea first came along, you know, during his uh, tenure as president. Uh, he refused to sign it because it was a threat to American sovereignty. And that, that particular kind of go-it-alone xenophobia and uh, hostility and dismissal of the rest of the world is something that is pretty unique to the United States, although it does creep up here, and it has crept into Britain. I mean, during during um, Margaret Thatcher's uh, tenure, and it's now it's creeping up here. While we have a, a small group of right wing extremists who've managed to, to uh, take control of the political system. Yeah, and introducing many of the same, uh, or trying to introduce many of the very ominous aspects of the United States, yeah. and trying to introduce them up here as yeah. well. Right, introducing extremist right wing Tea Party like values, and also it's now becoming increasingly clear using particularly American types of electoral fraud. Exactly. I wanted to ask about our love affair with science because science and the materialistic values that we've been holding on to have given access to many unbelievable things to a lot of people in a developed world and even the developing world. And many people there are aspiring to have the things that we have like iPhones and the unbelievable uh, amounts of goods that we can purchase cheaply relative to their ecological cost. And I'm wondering if there's a way to end our love affair with science while not reverting back to the dark ages. And if there is such a thing as rehab for technology addiction, what, what would that look like? <laughs> Uh, well, I hope so. I, and I, you know, I, I don't, as I say, I'm not against civilization and I'm not against uh, appropriate technology applied in a wise and socially and environmentally responsible way. Many of us would not be here if we didn't have modern medical science. And that's the good side of that technology. The bad side is that modern medical science has allowed us, our population, to mushroom from 1 billion less than two centuries ago to 7 billion now. And that, you know, is, is a large part of our problem. If you're going to introduce death control in the form of high-tech medicine, then you have to introduce birth control. We know that now, but it's kind of got away from us. We didn't even though we've known that for quite a long time uh, because of various social, religious, and political problems or difficulties. You know, we haven't done nearly as much with birth control as we should have done, especially while it was more manageable, although some countries have. I mean, Thailand has, Iran has, uh, China, of course, has. You know, so it's not something that can't be done. It's not something hopeless. So I think we've got enough technology. I mean, the astronomer royal of Great Britain, uh, Sir Martin Rees, in, in his book about the, the risks of technology, says, you know, we don't need more technology. We don't need new technologies to solve our problems. We simply need to use the ones we have properly. You know, I just gave the example of how, how medicine could be used in a better way. And the same is true of uh, almost, almost everything. What we don't need, though, is so many of these gadgets. I mean, these gadgets are are eating up our time. They are produced by people in horrendous conditions in, in, in sweatshops in countries where decent social conditions are, are, um, are just not there. And really, what do they do for us? You know, I mean, we, we've all got, just like Samajan Reese saying, we've got all the technology we need. We've got all the gadgets we need. I mean, you know, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, just having a, a telephone and a radio uh, was enough. And I mean, I didn't even own television until uh, till the 1980s and I never missed it and actually hardly watch it now either. But I I do use a computer. You know, I find a computer very useful. It's a great writing tool. However, I do not leave it switched on all the time and spend all my time surfing the net. You know, every technology we have is two-edged. And I guess we need to develop human value 
values that enable us to master our machines instead of letting them master us. That's a very slippery slope. I mean, the, the machines are very much in themselves addicting. And, you know, the, the possibilities of, of extending yourself around the world with these machines is very, very powerful. Are the dystopian possibilities of our civilization's future turning out worse than you could have imagined? I know you've written some science fictions where you've imagined some of these dystopias. And is there a reason for hope? I know you've also said in some of your talks that hope is actually one of the problems of our civilization, is that we keep having this hope and that it keeps taking us down roads that we don't want to go down. So yeah, is, is there a reason for hope? I've condemned foolish hope, which is, you know, hoping for the best without actually doing the hard work of making sure that you get the best outcome. I'm uh, just hoping things will turn out better than they seem. That's the dangerous thing. I'm hoping they're going to win the lottery somehow, you know, which in, in, in energy terms means hoping we're going to discover fusion, a way to control fusion, or hoping we're going to find something that will replace oil. That's the bad hope that leads us to put off dealing with our problems. But in order to deal with our problems, we do need to hope for, for a better world, and I don't think it's too late. I mean, if, if we give up hope, we may as well just give up right now and do nothing and let, let the world burn, and I'm certainly not advocating that. In terms of how things are shaking out, is it worse than I suggested it might be You know, when I wrote a scientific romance in the 1990s or when I wrote uh, A Short History of Progress um, seven or eight years ago. I think actually we've got a little more time than I thought at that time. I mean, things have, have deteriorated, certainly. Uh, the problems have become more serious, but I don't think they've twisted out of our control just yet. I think that we need to seize this moment when the capitalist system is in crisis, just as you know, when the communist system went into crisis. Not all the outcomes of that were good, but it was a moment when a, a large number of people in, in, in many different parts of the communist bloc were able to, to get back a level of democracy and autonomy in their own lives. And I think that now that sort of big corporate capitalism and big finance are both in serious trouble, we have an opportunity to bring about fundamental change and put our, not necessarily throw away the capitalist system, but put it on a much more equitable basis to manage it, which is something we've already learned to do. You know, you were, we were talking about how we're bad at learning from the past. I mean, the first half of the 20th century taught us that if you can't let capitalism rip because what you get is militarism, you get great wars, great depressions, millions of unemployed people who gravitate to extreme ideologies, whether it's Nazism or Bolshevism or anarchism, you know, that's what happens if you let capitalism capitalism rip. You have to manage it. And after the Second World War, that's where the modern social democracies and welfare states were. The basis on which they were created was to avoid repeating these mistakes. And then unfortunately, since the new right took over in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, those lessons have been torn up and forgotten. And, and we can return to that. That's still living memory. We can go back to a system that manages the fruits of capitalism in a way that they don't destroy the environment and they don't destroy society. So as people see the film Surviving Progress, it's a very polished and succinct film. If there's one or a few things that didn't fit into the film, what would you want people to know that maybe didn't make the final cut or an idea that just necessarily didn't translate to the big screen? Well, I think since this is um, largely a Canadian film, and the things that didn't make the final cut that if I had been making the film myself, which I which I wasn't, I mean, I think it's a terrific film. I, I, I'm delighted by the film. I think they've taken the ideas that I wrote about in very interesting directions. And there's a great deal, and they've made it their own thing. There's a lot in that film that, that I did not pursue in the same way. 
but I think the essential philosophical basis of the book is there, and, and, I, I, and, and in a way that will reach a lot of people. So I, I love the film, but. I think being Canadians, there should have been a picture of the tar sands in there and maybe a picture of clear cutting here in BC just to sort of balance the terrible pictures we, that are in the film from the Amazon or from, there's a terrible scene of you know, oil wells burning in, in, I think during the Gulf War, one of the Gulf Wars. As Canadians, we're criticizing what's going on elsewhere. We should acknowledge that we're making the same mistakes here. That's the only thing I would change. Congrats on Surviving Progress, the film. It's, uh, it must be amazing to see a book that you put out about such deep ideas that often aren't talked about translated into uh, a film, you know, with the help of people like Martin Scorsese. And Well, it, it is a thrill to see it and to see it done so well, because they, what they've done is, is, is something that's incredibly difficult to do, to, to present complex ideas in such a, you know, in an hour and a half and, and to do it in a way that is so entertaining and at the same time doesn't sacrifice the complexity. I mean, I've seen the film maybe seven or eight times now and each time I see things that, that I hadn't noticed quite before so I always find more things in it so I think that's a sign of a very rich and clever and, and brilliant film Eurozone, economic woes, and Jim Cramer, as you heard the debate this morning and the news from the summit this week, a lot of people are going to be talking about uh, just how central a role Europe actually plays in our fall election. Unfortunately, huge. I'm predicting bank runs, Spain and Italy, within the next few weeks. Without a coordinated policy, there is going to be financial anarchy in Europe, and it is going to cause a slowdown worldwide. China and here, this must be dealt with. The Germans are in charge, and they're pro-austerity, not growth. Well, it's been a truly hectic week for the EU with violent anti-austerity demos and political deadlock again casting doubts over the future of the euro. In Spain, as many as hundreds of thousands marched in nationwide protest. They chanted slogans and waved banners demanding an end to cuts and painful austerity. And in Italy, too, violent anti-austerity clashes erupted in the city of uh, Naples after yet another suicide apparently caused by an aggressive government taxation program. But above all that, it is, of course, the political turmoil in Greece. Greece went through a political earthquake in last election, and austerity policies were uh, totally rejected in, in what has been uh, the biggest loss of uh, mainstream parties in recent Greek history. Both the Greek political establishment and the European Union want a continuation of austerity. At the same time, it's not possible to actually have uh, a legitimate and legitimized government that would continue austerity. That's the real the heart of the so problem. So new elections aren't going to solve the problem. They're going to they're going to prolong it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think the only way to solve the problem is to have a radical change uh, in policies. Austerity cannot continue. In a way, it is a choice between austerity and democracy. The people have rejected the terms of the bailout agreements. They have rejected the terms of the loan agreements. A year ago, uh, by hearing all the time by the Greek media that uh, Greece will go bankrupted, I wanted to take my, my money and my family's money from the bank and put them somewhere else. Oh. 
by hearing all the time that and now that the situation is like that with the political results and we have no government right now, uh, my parents asked me to try and find my old London-based account if it is still open to move our money there. Greece sooner or later will implode because Greece has no political class which is able and willing to run the country or to govern the country. So uh, Greece is a, is a country without state, at least the state is not governed. And a country where you don't have a government, at least not something which is worth being called a government, uh, can no longer receive funds. Apart from that, I would like to remind you of the fact that uh, the, the, the Greek banking sector only lives on what we call, in technical terms, um, uh, emergency liquidity assistance. That is, that is to say the Greek uh, national bank gives money, lends money, liquidity to the Greek banks in order to hand out the money to uh, the consumers and the corporations because most of the Greek banks are undercapitalized and can, no, can not go any longer on. If any, at any time, um, in any case, uh, the EU system and the ECB board will, with a two-third majority, no longer authorize the Greek National Bank to hand out um, emergency liquidity assistance because this will finally have repercussion on the risk for all taxpayers in the EU system, then the country will factually implode and then the, the show is really over. And Marcus we have Kerber. a bank run because there will be no bank on them. Marcus Kerber, a grim picture you paint there. A professor of political economy at the Berlin Institute of Technology. Thank you for your thoughts. Every society in history for the last 4,000 years has uh, found that the debts grow more rapidly than people can pay. And the problem is a small oligarchy of 10% of the population at the top to whom all of these net debts are owed to. You want to annul the debts to the top 10%. That's what they're not going to do. The oligarchy is running things. They would rather annul the bottom 90% right to live than to annul the money that's due to them. They would rather strip the planet and shrink the population uh, and be paid rather than give up their claims. That's the political fight of the 21st century. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, episode number 41. Today we're talking with Matthew Roy and Harold Crooks, filmmakers behind the movie Surviving Progress. So Matthew, how did you make a film about a topic as broad as our entire fate as a civilization? Well, you know, first of all, this, this was a gift. I didn't trigger the project. It wasn't my idea at first. It, it comes from, from our main producer, Daniel Louis, from Cinema Genere here in Montreal, who was driving back home from his cottage in Vermont uh, one day, and you know, he listened to an excerpt of uh, Ronald Wright reading his Short History of Progress essay, and he immediately thought it was fascinating. I think it was the 
bit about Easter Island that got him interested. And the next morning, he, he bought the rights to do this into a documentary. So that was in 2005. I started, you know, really working and thinking about how to transform this this essay into a film in two, back in 2005, seven years ago now. Uh, so it was a long journey. The first reaction is, is really overwhelming to tackle like progress, the notion of progress. And so it took a lot of months and years of reading and researching and, 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 and screening these other documentaries about these grand issues to really come up with a, with a, with a vision to, to adapt this thing into a film and, and with you know an amazing team you know to create what the film is now. And Harold, how did you begin adapting something like this to a script? We wanted to identify the major threats to previous civilization, but we also wanted it to be a cinematic experience and a kind of uh, a cinematic requiem to progress as usual. We didn't want to make another eco-disaster film. We didn't want to make another Wall Street expose film. We wanted to kind of weave together some fundamental essential features of the human story in a way that was credible, cinematic, engaging. And one of the um, decisions that was made in order to enhance the cinematic experience was that there be no voiceover, you know, kind of voiceover narration, no voice of God narration. We wanted to weave together the thesis of the film from the interviews themselves. I guess if we had one major kind of structural guide, which we borrowed from Ronald Wright, it's the painting by Paul Gauguin called uh, Where Do We Come From, Who Are We, and Where Are We Going? It's one of his most famous paintings. I think it's actually in the, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And so we took that three-part perspective. You know, we went deep into our past and basically asked the question of what what is unique about our species and then these big factors that are identified in the Ronald Wright book and which we look for in the present. And the two, the two factors are when civilizations go over the carrying capacity of their environments, they are at the point of collapse. And Wright looked at that in all the previous civilizations and talked a bit about different UN millennium studies about the carrying capacity and increasing evidence that we as a, as a global civilization since the early 80s have begun to live off the capital rather than the interest of nature, which is a, a Ronald Wright thematic from the past. So you have that issue, which Vaclav Smil, the interdisciplinary population scientist and energy expert, who's one of the favorite characters in our film, is a world authority on this issue of the global carrying capacity and our consumption demands on that capacity. And then the other big issue beside the carrying capacity of, of any environment in which a civilization is situated is what Ronald Wright refers to as ideological pathologies, dangerous mindsets, mindsets that usually serve the interests of the elites that are very short-term in their thinking and can also pose grave threats to the sustainability of a civilization. So you've got the two things. You've got the issue of the carrying capacity of the environment in which a civilization is situated, and you have false belief systems or mindsets of elites or oligarchies that turn out to be fatal. It was a huge, huge challenge to weave all this together. I think there are about 11 or so people, uh, participants, who actually ended up in the film. But in the course of making the film, we probably interviewed 
over 50 people. And we look for people who had interesting things to say about uh, all the different um, themes of the film, the issue of the human footprint, the issue of human nature, the issue of political domination of majorities by self-serving elites. We also wanted to position ourselves and ultimately the audiences to think of the human species and the human story as one. So we wanted to weave together East and West, North and South. And in the course of doing that, we accompanied eco-cops in the Brazilian rainforest. Uh, we found a way of illustrating or illuminating the economic takeoff of China and the emergence of the transformation of China, China becoming, uh, to some extent, the workshop of, uh, of the planet, the emergence of a middle class there, of a consumerist middle class. So what is unique about the present moment is that we are now in one global interdependent interconnected civilization with no backup copies and in order to demonstrate that um, you know one of the individuals we talked to was uh, Victor Gao who is a young uh, Chinese diplomat had been translator interpreter for Deng Xiaoping the, uh, the the Chinese leader who put China on the path to a, gl a global market um, economy with profound consequences for the way in which we're impacting on the global environment and how Victor Gao talks about uh, being present at the moment in which our civilization becomes an interlinked, interdependent, single market system. Well, so I was wondering about your thoughts about how this film might play differently in in Canada or or the U.S. Because uh, when I saw it at the Vancouver the Vancouver Film Fest, at the end everyone was applauding, and just after watching it, I don't know if I would see that happening in a lot of places in the U.S. Just because you're kind of countering the the technocentric, you know, technological advance narrative. Uh, that's at the heart in many ways of American culture. And, you know, I don't know how you, you tell the person who's, uh, you know, uh, always embedded in this technological narrative that that may not arrive in the way that it that it, they're expecting. And then at the same time, that's also part of a major component that's destroying our ecology as well. Do you have any thoughts on how the, the film might play differently in, the, in Canada or the U.S.? Well, let me tell you a little story. I've recently come back from the Dubai International Film Festival, and the film played at one of the most outlandish, over-the-top consumer emporiums. It was called, it's called the Mall of the Emirates in Dubai. You may know it as the place that has this large indoor ski resort. And I was a bit kind of dubious about whether anyone would show up for the film, as to what kind of impact it would make in Dubai and was astonished when I arrived there to find out that the, the screenings were going to be in the Mall of the Emirates and to the surprise of the film festival organizers who, who told uh, Mathieu and I that uh, Dubai Film Festival audiences tended not to get documentaries. We had three full houses and in one of uh, the, the screenings because we've seen the film so many hundreds upon hundreds of times we tended to usually nip out after being introduced and then come back at the end of the film for the Q&A and when we came back to one of the, the, the organizers of the festival who attended one of the screenings told me after the screening that she had never attended a screening at the Dubai Film Festival in which there was spontaneous applause during the film. 
Wow. So, so, so I asked her, I said, well, who were they applauding? And she said that uh, the guy with the accent, the thick accent, and of course, that's a backlab smill. <laughs> now, Smill's message is so counter to the to the mall, as I said, must be one of the most over the top shopping plazas on the planet. But but there you had it. Vaclav Smill was being applauded in the Mall of the Emirates in Dubai. So we were asked that very question uh, by audiences in Dubai. You know, how do audiences differ? And I, like you, was at the Vancouver Film Festival, and you know, we we know that Vancouver is a very kind of has a very particular kind of consciousness. It's very proudly the home of Greenpeace, and then Adbusters is also its home as Vancouver. And so one would expect in Vancouver, and we had this. I, I thought that no audience would ever top the experience. Then I actually thought to myself, this will never be topped. But yet, when we went on to Montreal, and then we went to Amsterdam, uh, and then, as I said, even in Dubai, we felt that we were striking similar chords. So you mentioned the clip by Vaclav Smil. So I'm going to play that here um, to set up the next question. This doesn't fundamentally change the game. What fundamentally changes the game, and what people don't want to hear, and I'm coming across all the time, and people say, you know, don't talk to us like that because just is no starter. But for me, this is the only starter. We have to use less. The poor people need more. There is no doubt about it. There is no discussion there. If you are average village or somewhere in Rajasthan or Punjab or, or Nigeria, you need more, period. There's a basic human decency compels you to say these people need more. More clean water, more basic food, more education for their children. Is the discussion closed right, before it begins. Right? But as far as us is concerned, we certainly could and should do with much, much, much less. Well, I'm really, really pleased that you're highlighting Backlap Smil. He was the one participant who uh, required the most perseverance um, in getting him to agree. It took over a year to get him to agree, which is rather remarkable. But he turns out to be one of the definite stars of the film. It took him over a year to agree. How did you? It took you me over. Back? It took me over a year to get him to agree. Was you just sending him emails and calling him and saying, "Hey, you want to be a part of this movie?" Well, no. I I started. I initially contacted at him and he told me that he did not do television interviews. I told him this was not a television film. It was a film that was being made for, for theaters and the cinema. It was a movie, not a television documentary. And he said, oh, well, I'm sorry. He said, crews show up here. They take up an enormous amount of my time and uh, they either get what I have to say wrong or, or they use an insignificant amount of it. And my position is if people want to know what I think, they should read my books. Then what I did, because I was so I felt that he was so important for the film because of the way he addresses issues of carrying capacity, his knowledge about the use of energy at a global level, the consumption of uh, the impact of consumerism on living systems. He's an interdisciplinary expert. I mean, he's a, he's a guru to Bill Gates. Uh, he um, is a contrarian. Um, and he's he, I, I learned that he was respected by people on all sides of the political equation. So that made me, you know, very, very, you know, determined that um, we benefit from his views. Uh, uh, I guess the first place actually to answer your question that I discovered him was being told about an article he wrote uh, called Energy at the Crossroads. 
and uh, an analysis of, of our consumption and use of energy um, at a global level and uh, the predicament that we are facing as a result, for all sorts of reasons as a result of approaching, being at, or going over the limits of the carrying capacity of the planet. So, after he said no to me, I invested a bit of time in writing, I think it was a three or four page single-spaced typewritten appeal to him. And I thought that because he's a rather idiosyncratic gentleman that I wouldn't email it, I would I would mail it to him. He's at the University of Manitoba. So I sent it, and about a day after he received it, I get this phone call from him, and he said, I have never received a letter like this. Um, <laughs> yeah, in the mail. You're, you're mailing him to ask him to be in a movie. You know, he said, this is, he says, so what do you want me to do? I said, well... We really, really want to interview you. And he said, well, uh, okay, just give me the details. And we decided for environmental reasons, rather than flying a whole crew to Winnipeg, we would invite him to fly to Montreal for uh, a day and put him up in a nice hotel and take him out for a wonderful meal and then do the interview. So then I phoned him with this proposal and and it was at the time of the, into the financial crisis and um, he was just uh, very pessimistic and he said, well, I've got to leave for Japan. So I was pretty discouraged and I, I let it go for a while. But many, many months later, I saw that he had gone to the Perimeter Institute at the University of Waterloo. That's that institute that is created by one of the uh, founders of BlackBerry with his fortune. It's an institute for advanced uh, thinking and physics and cosmology, etc., etc. Anyways, he was he accepted an invitation to go there and he was interviewed being interviewed by Andrew Rivkin, the environmental writer of the New York Times. And I guess I saw it on YouTube or something like that. And he was just addressing the issues that we absolutely wanted to address in the film. So I just um I, I just picked up the phone and I phoned him and I said, Vaclav, you've, you, you've just got to be in the film. I, I, we just have to interview you. Then he said, well, there's been a fire in the faculty building here at the University of Manitoba and uh, my, my office uh, has been damaged, so I don't have any place to do it. So I said, Vaclav, we will rent a hotel room and, and do it there. He said, when are you coming? I said, we'll be there very soon. So about two days later, we arrived in, on one of the coldest days uh, in history. 40 below zero and we met him at this hotel and uh, had a very long and wonderful um, exchange with him for which we are very grateful another big guy that you were talking to uh, was Martin Scorsese and you brought him on this project what was his role and how did you speak with him about collapsing ideas in Ronald Wright's book this uh, goes back to 2003 when I had like the tremendous privilege of being uh, Martin Scorsese's personal assistant on the set of The Aviator here in Montreal. Pretty cool for the 25-year-old filmmaker that I was back then. And um, we kind of developed this amazing mentor, you know, student kind of relationship. And every day I was going to work and I, I would have these really long conversations about cinema with him. And we, you know, he kind of recognized my passion for films and 
uh, gave me a lot of films, we had a lot of conversation, and we kind of, you know, developed a, a, a friendship, a relationship. And, and so ever since, I've, I'm in touch, I've been visiting him in New York a lot, and visiting him on his sets, and I'm involved with another project with him, another documentary project around his World Cinema Foundation. And uh, so when I was offered to direct a Short History of Progress, I brought the book to him, and he opened the book to the first page, and he saw there was a, a, a quote um, by Aristotle from Amores, book three. And the quote is, long ago, no one tore the ground with claw shares or parceled out the land or swept the sea with dipping oars. The shore was the world's end. Clever human nature, victim of your inventions, disastrously creative. Why cordon cities with towered walls? Why arm for war? And so Marty read this thing <laughs> and said, oh yeah. And, and, um, and he read the book in a few hours and he thought it was fascinating and he, he offered his help um, as an executive producer, you know, to help us uh, throughout the financing process. And, and I had a few brainstorm sessions with him at his place in New York. And, you know, as you know, Marty is a great uh, encyclopedia, you know, and his brain works really fast. And he's, he's definitely a film historian, but he's also, you know, close to being a historian. He did a lot of research on Rome and, and, and uh, read, you know, many great poets, Greek poets. And, and, and tra tra tragedian and um, he was, the subject matter you know uh, was interesting to him and he, he decided to help us and and then later in the editing process we, we showed him a few cuts and I, I sat down with him and he you know, gave us advices on on the cuts, and um, so that that's his involvement. I, was, I mean, it wasn't as as hands-on as Mark Agbar or our other producers, but it was still a, a nice little presence in the background. And Alec, a listener in London, Ontario, wanted us to ask about the the difference between the ways in which we use our cleverness versus our wisdom as a species. And I'm wondering if you gained any insight into that in making the film. Yeah, well, I guess that's that's the heart of the question. Like you've you've touched on, uh, it's that that's the the challenge. How are we going to raise our ethical level as a species? That's that's a hard question, and I think that would be another really great sequel to the film is to start with that question. And um, I mean, I think there's no doubt in my mind that it's it's hand to hand with education and with like better access to education and better designing our education programs here in the Western world, but also, you know, try to develop it everywhere on the planet and make it like a kind of a global priority that if, if everyone is kind of educated and, and got like free knowledge via the internet, well then it's kind of all, our only chance to preserve a better, you know, ethical kind of etiquette for, for the species. Uh, but that, you know, that's a super long-term plan. It's like a century-long plan and, and, and the species, and, you know, we don't like to admit it, but we're like, why would we sacrifice ourselves for this planet if we're going to be dead? And that's the problem with the long-term versus short-term gratification, you know, that we're hardwired for. Uh, so I think it's just a question of understanding that, coming to terms with the fact that we won't see 
uh, radical change, you know, in our lifetimes of, of the way we work as a species. So let's let's be humble about this. Um, so how do you see people moving forward after seeing this film? How do you want people to respond, and how do you think they'll respond? And maybe at a future cocktail party somewhere, you'll hear somebody mention, "Oh, by the way, I saw your film, and we're screwed." <laughs> You know, uh, there's a certain humility required by us. Uh, we are not all-seeing beings. We do not know what the future holds in store. Uh, and as Vaclav Smil uh, so uh, energetically argues in the film that uh, he's not going to make prescriptions. It's a question of contributing to a growing consciousness of our predicament. You know, the great anti-capitalist experiments of the 20th century in the Soviet Union and in China have taught us nothing about sustainability, of what, how sustainability might, what, what sustainability might consist of in an advanced urban civilization. That really is all to be invented by your generation and succeeding generations. But I do know that, you know, when I was coming on stream, uh, before I got into film, I, I thought I was going to be an economics professor. And, you know, decades ago, I was interested in the issue of sustainability and sustainable economics, but I, it was made very clear to me then that that was a non-starter in terms of um, of having um, uh, you know a, a, a career in the economics professor it was not a, a preoccupation of the profession but now I see you know all, where, wherever we travel you know that young people that uh, that sustainability is a part of um, of the vocabulary of, of your generation people are in a multitude of, of ways and a multitude of uh, academic disciplines in a myriad of ways are thinking and pursuing the meaning and possible implementation of ways in which we might achieve uh, something that um, has not been present in the last, you know, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I think we also are, be are coming as, uh, I mean, to, to make a plug for another documentary, the Inside Job, I think, do, do, you, do you guys know Inside Job, the, the documentary? Yeah, I, I saw yeah. it. It's really awesome. Well, one of the things I think is most awesome about inside job and most important is not merely the expose of casino capitalism on wall street and it's the exposure of the uh, the economics profession and the econ the economists who have participated in this kind of um, practice that is so isolated from the moral and social and ethical consequences of economic behavior and i think we may be hopefully entering a period in which that the teaching of economics and the practice of economics as an activity isolated from moral Moral and ethical consideration, uh, maybe the foundations of that kind of economics have been so badly shaken by the financial crisis that new generations of um, people going into um, economics will insist upon the reintegration of moral, political, and ethical consideration into the practice of economics um, and to return it to a, where it originally began as a moral and political philosophy rather than a failed attempt to turn it into a branch of mathematics or physics.
closes out our conversation with Matthew and Harold about Surviving Progress, the film. And Seth recently got to see Surviving Progress for the first time at the Montreal Degrowth Conference, where the film was screened. I saw the film back in September at the Vancouver International Film Festival and was really impressed by the way that it could take these concepts of the collapse of industrial civilization and really make them very slick. And I'm wondering, Seth, what was your impression of the film when you had a chance to see it? Now, when Justin says he's seen it before, he's actually seen it like four times before. And it was kind of funny that we were interviewing these filmmakers and Ronald Wright. And uh, he had seen the movie four times and I I had not seen it before. So I was very excited to see the film when they had the screening at the Degrowth Conference in Montreal. And it was probably one of the slickest films I have seen up to this point that have gone into depth about these really intricate topics. What was really interesting for me is that we got to actually talk to some of the people that were part of this movie and to actually have that first-hand conversation with with people who are not very small figures in this degrowth and this uh, anti-growth kind of world. I thought that was very interesting and and the ideas were packaged really well. One of the reasons I got excited about this film when I saw it for the first time and then took some friends to see it for the second time, I've only seen it twice. (laughs) One of the reasons I got excited about it is because it does package these ideas that we talk about on our show and that we discuss with so many different authors, professors and filmmakers and really present them in a way for public discussion to spark that conversation. And Seth, I don't know if when you were seeing it, Is this something that you could show to your parents and get them to start talking critically about the collapse of industrial civilization? Or do you think it's still so far out that it's really hard for people to start discussing it? Well, Justin, I can show lots of different things to my parents. And, you know, I can show them all sorts of different movies. And and I make this podcast, you know, so in part because they wanted to explore these ideas in a way that was a professional take on degrowth ideas and different kind of anti-capitalistic tendencies and and ways to explore different kinds of ways of thinking. But for this movie, I think that it, it makes it visually appealing enough so that you can get past the disbelief, which is so much a part of what this this movement is about is getting people past the disbelief is getting people past the fact that they've been taught these ideas for their entire life and they've been shown examples of ways that that this this their current belief system has played out over and over again for hundreds of years and get them to see the fact that their way of life is not really sustainable in so many different ways and that there are other ways of thinking about these complicated issues that that many people believe are just the way it is and and for me, any film or any piece of media that can get people past that stumbling point, get people past that little hurdle, is a good piece of media. And this film really does that. Absolutely. And it's a nice uh, short film. It's not two plus hours long like some of our podcast episodes. So, <laughs> you know, you, uh, you might be able to actually get through it in one, one sitting as opposed to some of our podcasts, which definitely should take more than one sitting. Yes, and I have some views about our podcast. You should think of them as audiobooks and not really as podcasts. <laughs> yeah. You know, think of them as like a multi uh, a multi-viewing kind of experience that you can take with you on multiple drives to and from work. So Exactly. And Justin, tell me about your take on the Degrowth Conference. The Montreal Degrowth Conference was an excellent experience. I did not expect how awesome it would really be. We had a great time there 
shooting so many interviews. I think we did uh, over 20 interviews during the week. We shot tons of videos of the different sessions. So we're going to be putting all of those online on our new video channel. What it, uh, And where can people find that, Seth? Well, people can find our, our video channel on Vimeo. Uh, Vimeo.com slash Extra Environmentalist. People can go there, check it out. We're also going to be posting text summaries of these video interviews alongside the actual videos themselves. So if you don't have time to watch the whole video, you can come to our blog, which is at ExtraEnvironmentalist.com slash blog, where our blog editor, Louisa, is doing some great summaries of these interviews and then posting the video right next to it. So you can go read the article and you're like, hey, I want to learn a little bit more about that. Click the video. You're right into the, the conversation and you can check out the interviews as well. Additionally, what we're going to be thinking about in the long term is making these making these interviews into some kind of large uh, summarized documentary of the conference. So we're going to take all of this stuff that we've we had, all the interviews that we've had, and kind of mash them together into a, a really interesting documentary that hopefully will you know rival Surviving Progress. Yeah, that's definitely not going to happen. They're, they're, <laughs> way, they're way too experienced. Our hours will not look as good. But you can think of these videos as TED Talks about the collapse of industrial civilization. They're really the, the TED of collapse in many ways. That's a so, good way of thinking about it. Yeah, I think our longest one was like 23 minutes. So Yeah, uh, a lot more accessible than some of our podcasts. And plus you get to actually see video of the person talking, which is right. not something you get listening to Justin and I speak. Yeah. Fortunately, that's that's why we're in radio. We have that's the faces right, yeah. for it. So Fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But actually we're going to be doing a lot uh, a lot more video in the in the near future and there's a lot of uh, speakers and uh, interesting people who should be on the extra environmentalist and just because we have so many interviews lined up, we just can't uh, schedule them in, in in short notice. And so what we're doing is actually, as people come through Vancouver or through North Carolina, uh, we're going to sit down and shoot video with them uh, in preparation for whatever conference it is that Seth and I head to next to shoot a large series of interviews. So you can expect continual video content from us. But whenever you watch a video, go and share it on Facebook, go and share it on Twitter, uh, you know, like it on Vimeo, talk about it with your friends. It's a good way to get a lot of the concepts that we've discussed on our big, long podcasts into smaller, distributable bites that can form the context of, of conversations. So um, it was really great to speak with so many amazing people up in Montreal. And uh, it's only the first conference. We're going to be doing more. I don't know which one it'll be, but if you are aware of a conference that you think we should go to and try to find a way to cover, uh, let us know and we can try to figure out a way there. That's right, Justin. And you were mentioning before that everywhere you go seems to have a protest associated with it. You went to Greece and there was a riots in the street and you went to Spain and there's some more riots there. Now in Montreal, we, we ended up being in another student movement protest where the students who are protesting the 75% tuition increase took to the streets and voiced their displeasure to their local government. Justin, tell me what it was like walking in that student movement. Tell me what the energy was like and what, what, we, what we felt like we were accomplishing. As you mentioned, everywhere it seems that I go, um, it's in the middle of a major protest movement, and that's completely coincidental. That's, I don't know how that happens. Like when I went <laughs> to New York last year, it was right when Occupy Wall Street started blowing up. So I don't know how that works out. Um, but anyways, it was very fortunate to be there at a time when Montreal is hosting the biggest uprising against uh, neoliberal ideology 
in North America. And what's really exciting to me is that some of the student leaders who are behind the movement are really starting to think about redefining what education means as they move forward with these protests. And so there's a lot of people involved. They're getting several hundred thousand people out in the streets and, and protesting. And the government is starting to react with really draconian laws, unbelievable fines for the people involved. And it's really crazy what's going on here in Canada um, that the government would lash out in the way it does. But as I mentioned, it's really exciting that uh, students are starting to really question what education is all about. Why are we going to school? Why are we spending so much money to do it? And some people might say that, you know, students in Quebec, they spend such a small amount of money on their education that, you know, they're just whining and complaining about this 72 or I think 78% increase for on their education over several years, um, you know, they're just uh, spoiled or, or something like that. Well, from the other perspective, I'm saying, why is it that we pay so much for education here in British Columbia? And we really pay nothing for education compared to what people in the United States. Why aren't there hundreds of thousands of people out in the street in cities in California saying, why am I paying so much to go to school? Why am I paying so much in a place like New York City to go to school? It just doesn't make any sense. And so to me, it's really encouraging that at least there is a city in North America that's willing to to rise up and say, look, we really need to think critically about our education system and uh, question why it is that we're paying so much money to go to school. Yeah, what I found really fascinating about the strikes as well is that the, the faculty are really behind the students. I mean, that is a huge deal. I mean, it's one thing when you have students striking, not going to class, but when you have a faculty that are consolidated behind a student movement, and that really gives them some power. Well, I watched some videos where the, the teachers are just speaking out about how they feel so strongly that this that the student movement is really something that needs to be supported. They're actually blocking the, the doors of the school. They're actually keeping it shut. So that no nobody can go into the school, and they're they're fighting off these injunctions that the government is trying to pass, and that that's something that's really special to me. That the fact that the whole city almost can can just consolidate behind one issue like this and really push a, a social issue forward. It's definitely not something that you're used to in the United States. That feeling of solidarity, and that was uh, an incredibly unique uh, feeling because as we marched through the highway and shut down the highway. There were people in the cars holding up these red squares that are the symbol of the movement saying, you know, we support you guys, like honking, not to say like, ah, you're blocking the road, I need to get home. They were saying like, look, we support what you're doing here. We support what's happening. And that that's right. Yeah, that and it was wasn't really just incredible. it wasn't just the students. We walked through the, the cities and there were people, middle aged people, people 60s, 50s, you know, not marching with us, but holding up these big red squares, which are the symbol of this movement, the, the, red, the red square is the symbol. And people, you know, like, not even like my parents age, people not our age, were holding up these big red squares in solidarity for the movement. They're like, Yeah, you guys are doing great. Keep going. We walked under these overpasses, and it was just lined with people standing above us just cheering us on. And that, that to me felt made it feel like we we're in a parade, you know, doing some fun stuff but it was some very important work that we were doing and you know really supporting our our brothers up in canada yeah and so in the future um uh, we'll likely be speaking to some of the people who are behind the movement just so we can get an idea of how they organize several hundred thousand people out on the street and some of the social uh, context that they're working in to be able to do something like this
Exactly. So, and, and talking about organization, our organization has been getting a lot of support from our listeners. And it's been really overwhelming just to see the amount of support we've been getting. People writing emails, people sending us uh, interviews, topics that we should explore. A lot of people writing on our Facebook and tons and tons of emails as well as donations. And we've gotten a really special gift from one of our listeners, Kevin, who sent us a whole box of T-shirts now, these things are not just regular t-shirts. They're two-color, two-sided t-shirts that are just just fantastic. Yeah, I was absolutely blown away by Kevin's generosity. And so our deepest, deepest thanks goes out to Kevin. Um, but the best news about these t-shirts is that we can spread them around now. We can actually share this uh, this gift that Kevin has given to us with all of you. And so if you are interested in sporting some extra environmentalist t-shirts which i must say are quite dashing and when i went through the airport security in montreal the airport security came up to me in french and i couldn't exactly understand what they were saying but they were giving me thumbs up and saying that uh, they were environmentalists or something and that they really enjoyed the shirts i'm hoping that's what they're saying because when airport security comes up to you it's it can be threatening sometimes <laughs> No, what they're actually saying to Justin was, get down on your hands, crazy American wannabe Canadian. <laughs> no, but seriously, with these these t-shirts need to be spread out. They need to be given out around the world or around this continent, at least. And we need your ideas about how best to distribute these things and how best to give them out to our to all of you, our, our dedicated listening public. Now, whether this involves some kind of monetary donation, whether this involves you know some kind of skit that you record, whether this is a, uh, a monologue telling us how great you think Justin's beard is, we no, need all these not. all these ideas together. We need to come up with a way and a scheme to distribute these things. And you know, if you want them, we need to hear from you. We want to get these shirts out to everybody, and we could just say, you know, send us $25, $30 in donation, and, and we'll send them out, but we want to get your ideas on how to uh, send out these t-shirts. And so Kevin didn't just send t-shirts, he also sent us a surprise of some stickers that look incredible. They look great on your laptop lid, on your book about some form of alternative economics that you're reading, or on school's front door, vandalism is okay as long as it's extra environmentalist related. <laughs> no, you can't say that. I can't say that. I'm sorry. I, I, take that out. <laughs> so what we want to do is uh, share these stickers with everybody. And so if you send us $10, a $10 donation from this episode on and include a note that's, that says that you want to be part of the street team or that you want some of these stickers that you can throw around, we'll send you 10 stickers anywhere in the world. And uh, you can have some of these fabulous stickers that Kevin printed off for us, which are really, really incredible. I want to throw a stipulation in there, Justin. If people get the 10 stickers, they need to take photos of them where they put them. So yeah. if you put it on your grandmother's car or you put it on your, your small child or you, know, you, you tattoo one of these stickers onto your, the back of your, your arm, we want to see it and we want to put it up on our website. We want, we want to share the love with what you're putting out. And, you know, it's, it's pretty cool to see where they go. Yeah, and we'll put them all over the website. But that means do not take unnecessary risks in placing the stickers. Don't put them on a bear. Don't put them on your we're hair. Not we're not responsible for where you put the stickers. 
uh, that's that's up to you, and you take the risk in, in placing the stickers anywhere. So, Extra Environmentalist has no uh, a liability for where the stickers are placed. But if you do place it in a really, uh, you know, unique place, I, I know Justin would like to see it. I don't know about me, but Justin is that kind of guy who oh, wants to see a sticker placed on the back of a uh, angry boar. If you're gonna put them on your on an apocalypse bunker, make sure that you own it, and it's not someone else's who's inside and armed with a lot of yeah, weapons. That's that's always a bad call. Yeah, you'll get shot, and we don't want that happening. That's true. Yeah. So uh, once again, just send us ten dollars anywhere in the world, and we'll send you ten stickers. And so you're supporting the show, and you're also getting some incredible stickers. And so and you also again, get the bonus content as well. And, and the bonus content, which all of our fabulous uh, patrons have received by donating to us over the last few weeks. And that includes Vincent from San Francisco in California, who sent us a note. And he said that he was loving the podcast and that we really are getting close to that 100th monkey who's getting these ideas, which is really exciting. Um, so thanks, Vincent. And also Christian in, in Darmstadt, Germany. So thanks for sending us a donation and uh, for a recommendation on, on a book. Thanks to Claudia from Mexico City. I know you've donated before, so we really appreciate that. She was our first Mexican uh, listener that, that donated in. And it's really exciting to have Mexico representing for the Extra Environmentalist. All, all across North America, from Mexico all the way up to Canada. So that's really cool. And she says in her note to give cheers to Luisa as well. We will definitely do that. Also, thanks to Alex for his donation. It was really great to, to hear from you, Alex, all the way out in Massachusetts. Absolutely. So many thanks for sending your hard-earned money our way. And as a small token of thanks, we sent you some of that extra bonus content, which was a lecture I recorded here in Vancouver. I have so many lectures recorded and so many more lectures recorded at the Degrowth Conference. So there's tons of great material um, for all of the people who are donating. We also and got an email from Jim, who is not really a fan of PayPal and could go into an, a long lecture about the reasons that PayPal is not good for him. So, if any of our listeners, listeners, if any of our listeners out there feel strongly that PayPal is not the way to go and would rather use snail mail to email a piece of parchment littered with your John Hancock, let us know. Send us an email. We will be happy to send you an address where you can mail that off to. Hello, world. This is Quasi Periodic. And I'm listening to the Extra Environmentalist. Uh, yeah, I called y'all before, you got my name wrong, no big deal. I mean, it's a weird word. I'm out here on my tractor again, and y'all had that friendly show with the friendly invitation to uh, call in, and I had a friendly beer, and just met some friendly people walking over the friendly ground, so I thought I'd say hello. But out here on the tractor, you know, it's really good to have some positive reinforcement that the world uh, at large is thinking some of the same, same thoughts that I am. Uh, I don't know how I would be organic industrial agri-cropping vegetable farming without podcasts like you in the kmo and lorenzo y'all help me stay sane while i'm driving in circles so i sure appreciate it good freaking work and i look forward to who improves on what y'all have already improved on because it's going to be fucking something else but i also look forward to y'all's episode too all right love y'all big thanks to quasi periodic for his continued voicemail support we are really excited to hear more of your exploits that are happening every day on your tractor and we are so very glad that justin and i could be the inspirations for you doing circles on your tractor out in that field 
it's people like you, sir, who really make the extra environmentalist what it is. You know, if you are out in your garden or out farming or out on a tractor, there is something that is at least two hours long that you can listen to, and we will produce I, that for you. Not necessarily the most amazing thing you will ever re- <laughs> listen to, perhaps, but it will definitely get you through a two-hour tractor session. It, it, I can promise you that everything that we will produce from here on out, no guarantees about our past material, will be better than repeat tractor noise. That is our goal. As long as we have that as a standard, it's just it's up from there. It's a noble goal. <laughs> we have to try to aspire to something, right? Exactly. It's good to have goals. It's good to be goal-oriented. And not being a drowning tractor is one of our goals. <laughs> hey, guys. This is Rebecca from Minneapolis calling. I listened to your podcast, Debunking Economics, uh, one and a half times now, and was totally blown away. I've said for a long time that I wouldn't take seriously any economist who, who didn't see the 2008 crisis coming. In hindsight, it seemed like not being able to see an elephant charging through your door. I never understood what the gap was. I only casually study economics through mostly podcasts on uh things like the environment and resource depletion, sort of sideline discussions of that. But Steve Keen laid it all out there, and your interview with him was fantastic, and I feel like I'm sane again, and now I have some direction on where to go to find out more. So um, thanks so much for your good work. I've been digging the podcast for a while now, trying to spread the word. And, uh, yeah, thanks again. Keep up the good work, you guys. Take care. And, and thanks so much for calling in, Rebecca, from Minneapolis. So great to know that you might be able to trust an economist once again, Steve Keen being that economist. But he may not be the only economist that you can trust because we just got back from the degrowth conference, as we mentioned, and we spoke to a lot of economists, a lot of ecological, biophysical, alternative economists who are dealing with some of these issues. And so I wanted to play a, a few clips from some of the interviews that we did. Something called a production function in economics, a Cobb-Douglas production function. This is one of many examples I could give you. So if you do a Cobb-Douglas production function in economics, you say the production of stuff, of goods and services, um, is a function of capital and labor. That's what they like, capital and labor. That's what the economist is. And, and you put this, take this equation and look at the growth, for example, of the United States economy. A guy named Dennison wrote three books on this. And he is left with about half of the growth unexplained. And so what the economists would say, oh, well, we can't explain that because the increase in labor is only this much, the increase in capital is only this much, the increase in the economy is that much. We can only explain half of the growth. The rest must be due to technology, to the spark of human ingenuity. But my uh, colleague, Reiner Kummel, puts energy into the equation and not only does the residual disappear, in other words, technology has no meaning except through more energy, but energy is more powerful than either capital or labor. Well, economic growth as a policy priority of government can be traced back to the work, I believe, of John Maynard Keynes, who wrote in the mid-1930s when the world was in a massive depression. And what he was looking at was how to bring economies out of a depression. And his answer to that was governments should spend money because the private sector was not spending enough. And governments in many, many countries adopted that as official policy around the mid-1940s. 
it very quickly became realized, however, that a key component of those expenditures was investment. By investment in economics, we mean new buildings, new equipment, all adding up to the increasing the capacity of the economy to produce. And so it became necessary, they realized, that it wasn't just enough to spend more money, but to spend more money more every year. And so for the first few years of this development of policy, uh, the pursuit of growth was designed to, su to support employment as a policy. In the 1950s, towards the end of the 1950s, that got switched around and growth itself became, the, became paramount. And I think that had quite a lot to do with the Cold War and the arms race and, and so on. So it's really only since about the mid-1950s, 1960, that Western governments in particular uh, adopted economic growth as, as a policy, a primary policy objective. Uh, for government. Looking at the GDP question, I actually think GDP is a fairly appropriate measure of costs, not benefits. And that seems to be a radical claim. Costs often are associated with benefits. You pay more for a bicycle, you probably get a better bicycle. You pay more for a house, you probably get a better house. But it's not always that case. And to make that case, here in Canada, you spend about 9% of your GDP on healthcare. In the United States, we spend about 17%. So if we're looking at GDP as a measure, our healthcare system is vastly superior to yours because it, it's far, it, it, we, we create more, far more GDP through our healthcare system. However, our life expectancy is less than yours. Our infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates are higher than yours. Our obesity levels are higher than yours. In fact, on almost every major indicator of health, the United States falls far behind Canada. If I tell somebody we have a better healthcare system because we spend more than you, um, you know, it's, well, that's crazy. In fact, the way you evaluate the quality of a healthcare system are those health indicators. If the United States and the U.S. had similar levels of health indicators, how would you compare the quality of our systems? The cheapest system would be the better system. You would divide your quality of life measured in years of healthy life, for example, for a healthcare system by the costs. The costs belong in the denominator. When we strive to maximize GDP, we are striving to maximize costs, which is patently insane. If you think of a rocket ship going straight up, uh, there's many things that keep it on course, from a complicated guidance system uh, to uh, you know, the environment through which it's traveling. But if it doesn't have any fuel, it's not going anywhere. And the problem is that that rocket will continue to, ac to accelerate. It'll get faster and faster right up to the point where it runs absolutely out of fuel and then it comes down. And so we have a, a problem right now in that we're accelerating, we're growing uh, globally, we, we are in a situation where uh, we haven't paid attention to the fuel gauge and uh, we're going to be surprised if we're caught short. Hi Seth and Justin, it's David. It was wonderful seeing you at the conference. I'm going to record the sound of a fire crackling now and then leave my actual message. Hopefully that didn't melt the phone too much. Anyway, I found the conference really excellent and there were a lot of new ideas. There were a lot of the same ideas that I've had before and that other people have had before but presented in really articulate ways and well thought out. It gives me a, a whole bunch of confidence and excitement that there's a well thought out body of intellectual production, I guess, behind all of this degrowth, but there's also the theory there to back it up. I think what was most unexpected about this conference for me, and what I was most excited to find, was a focus on the part of the organizers of the conference and 
just kind of an intention that seemed to start to affect some of the other people there to open up space for kind of all the different possibilities. The John Cage piece that was performed maybe on Tuesday afternoon and the subsequent discussion about how tension builds in an environment where you're asked to do nothing of your own free will, but if doing nothing is imposed on you from outside, we will happily sit still and take it. The way that the whole conference was organized around this idea of first getting some knowledge and some grounding and then moving into sharing and experiencing and relating helped to structure things. Anyway, all in all, it was pretty fantastic. It's the first kind of resource scarcity conference I've been to that wasn't exclusively populated by old white men. The amount of young people, women, non-white people, few of them as there were, was still really refreshing. And I am not sure what I'm going to do with this information. Not at all a factor, just an employee of the country's real masters. Just like the Bushes, Clinton and Obama, just another talking head telling lies on teleprompters. If you don't believe the theory, then argue with this logic. Why did Reagan and Obama both go after Gaddafi? We invading sovereign soil, going after oil. Taking countries is a hobby, paid for by the oil lobby. Same as in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm a dinner jar, say they coming for Iran. They only love the rich. And thanks for your voicemail, David. It was really great to meet you up in Montreal, along with so many other uh, amazing people. And I think that we're all kind of at a loss on what to do with that information. But most of all, Seth and I are going to do everything we can to get the information out from the conference because it contributes, as we talked about in our interview today with Matthew and Harold, this general understanding, uh, this larger understanding and awareness of the predicament that we're in. And all of that content is going to be heading your way through our Vimeo channel, through some of the future episodes that we do. And so make sure that you check it out. We've got so many great episodes on the way. We're always recording interviews to be on the show. So now that Seth and I are done with our travels for now, we're going to be able to settle down and actually edit these up and get them out to you. So you can definitely expect much more frequent episodes in the near future. And always remember that all of our content is licensed under the Creative Commons, so you can go ahead and take any of our things that you see online, feel free to repurpose it and put it into your own podcast, put it up on your Facebook, put it up on Reddit, burn it to a CD and give it to your grandma. All of our stuff's free and open to the public, as long as you just say, hey, this is by the Action Environmentalist. That's the only thing we really ask. Additionally, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes, on the Stitcher Radio app, and on our website, which is www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check us out on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter, which we where we've been putting tons and tons of, of tweets out. Been getting a lot of retweets lately as well. Uh, find us on our blog, which is just exploding all over the place. People writing in to contribute and finding contributors all over the world, as well as adding video content and summaries from our latest videos. Our blog editor, Louisa, is just amazing. That address, again, is extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog. Find us there, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Also, you can leave us a voicemail message. Also, you can leave us a voicemail message on our online voicemail, which happens to be 919-862-XTRA. Or on find Skype. Us, find us there on Skype as well. We love to hear from you. 
our listeners are the most important thing to us. So write us an email on podcast at extraenvironmentals.com. And I think I've run out of ways for you to contact us. So if any of you missed any of that, just uh, go to our website. And if you do call us and leave us a voicemail, make sure you leave the way that I can send a very special mixtape to you because I want to put that music out into the world that we don't get to use on the show. So if you want some of that music, let us know your contact info or email or whatever it may be, and then I'll send it your way. You can also find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash extraenvironmentalist, where we're putting clips from some of the interviews that we're recording, so that way you can know who's in the pipeline and who may just be the next episode after the next episode. And, you know, I need to say one more. I've said it before, but our new Vimeo channel is extra is vimeo.com slash extra environmentalist where you can find all of our new videos that are just going up you know a few a day and they're going to be posted on facebook they're going to be posted on our blog but if you want the latest breaking videos check us out on the vimeo channel and even though it's been a while since we've put out an episode there's been a lot of other content that we've been working with over the last month if you check out Radio EcoShock. Alex Smith suggested that we interview Michael McGonigal at University of Victoria, and so we we and so we interviewed Michael McGonigal for Radio EcoShock. But we have a full hour interview with Michael about some amazing topics about his ideas on how to decentralize the political system, as well as a video interview we did with Michael in Montreal. So be sure to check out the Radio EcoShock show at radioecoshock.org. That covers it all. So. It looks like we're going to have to go and speak to some trolls about uh, ramping up the rate at which we're editing, and then we can get some more episodes out very soon. Yeah, those trolls have just been slacking off since we've been in Montreal. They've just not been on their game. There's no good app for my phone right now that can whip trolls from a distance. It's terrible. There, there is one I found that does electroshock therapy. <laughs> <laughs> on it, trolls, though. It needs to be specifically for right. trolls. Yeah, we'll have to investigate that a little bit yeah. more. So from Justin and I, The Extra Environmentalist, thanks once again for listening to another epic episode of The Extra Environmentalist. 41 episodes is not an easy thing to do, so we will be seeing you later. Thanks again for being our dedicated audience. You're amazing. Go out and protest in the street. And wear some Extra Environmentalist t-shirts and stickers while you do it. Don't get Ecological culture is a great way of defining our aspirations, isn't it? Um, because we're trying to say it's a culture of inclusiveness. It's a culture of harmony and creativity. It's a culture that recognizes mistakes, but it's a culture that says long-term planning is going to matter.
how we build our cities, how we, we shift the sense even of profit. Is it profit for the bottom line of a corporation or is it profit for people and the planet? That's a huge, huge shift. So it's going to look differently for sure. It's going to have education that's much more vibrant, that mu that's much more nature-based, exciting for children and so on. It's going to have a sense that community matters rather than isolated individuals. It's going to have a sense of what is a shared equitable economy that provides housing and health and education and infrastructure for society that aspires to live in, in a sustainable way. Our cities are broke. Our shoreline cities are trying to build up just the shoreline against climate change all across, as you know, North Carolina, the whole shoreline up through New England. The sea level rises are already upon us. The insurance companies aren't insuring coastal waters. So we've got to build into an economy that plans for the future, but has a sense of resilience and vibrancy, a community-based spirit, a local spirit, a food-enjoying spirit, healthy food uh, for our children and the next generation. Even if the solar cell costs were to drop to zero, even if we, the technology were so good that we could drop the cost so low that it's cheaper than chewing gum, we'd still have the problem of having to pay for the installations and all the maintenance. And even at a zero cell cost, a lot of people think that solar cells still would not become competitive. And that's a really shocking statistic to think about, that even if it's free, it's still not going to be a good deal. So that means that the efficiency level of the solar cell would have to go way up from where it is today uh, in order to make that equation work. Because even at a cell cost zero, if you could increase the efficiency a lot, then maybe you could start to see some benefit. But we're probably not going to see those benefits by uh, spending more money on increasing solar cell production now. We might see those benefits if we spend more money on research and development, but more money is being spent on solar cell production than research at this point. Today on Lifestyles of the Poor and Destitute, we go around the world to see people affected by austerity. For these people, the invisible hand has turned out to be a slap in the face. Today, we take you to Baltimore, Maryland, where Robert now has the freedom to be his own boss after getting laid off from his job. Well, it used to be that I was a Wall Street banker, but when the downturn came, 
I didn't have a job no more. My wife left me. My kids all went away. And I had to start living under an overpass. Boy, those overpasses are cold at night. Now that I can control my hours of work, I can really be my own boss. That means I don't have to wake up on time anymore. I can also skip showers and decide not to eat dinner. Robert's privileges run deep in society. He gets free transportation. Sometimes I even get to ride for free on a boxcar. Boy, I like me some free transportation. Now, we're on the shores of Baltimore, this glimmering city of American beauty, where Jerry is on his yacht. Hello, I'm Jerry. When this government funding for my scientific laboratory took a nosedive, so did I. I ended up squatting on this fancy yacht out in the harbor. Now, Jerry hosts fabulous parties for the local elite in his social circle, where they wear only the finest furs. Yeah, we found some uh, old dog furs, some dead animal dogs, and we wrapped ourselves up in them. And you know, everybody comes out to my yacht, we burn a little fire in the barrel and uh, try to keep warm. Sometimes we pass around a little bottle of scotch if somebody has it, but you know, most time we just complain about how cold it is and how, how much we used to enjoy being uh, rich, but now how poor we are is it's really hard. Jerry frequently hosts many other fabulous investors who threw their life fortunes into Facebook. Now they host celebrity chef parties. We get Emeril Gossi down here sometimes, and uh, his BAM isn't what it used to be. Now, instead of saying BAM, he says CAN, and opens up a can of fresh beans. He's a lot skinnier than he used to be. I'm a lot less worried about his heart condition. Jerry's yacht parties are renowned across the shining city of Baltimore. Please, can you spare a dime? Now we see a fabulous entertainment industry baroness who runs the most fabulous nightlife hotspot in town. Oh yes, we have a traveling circus and uh, we cater to the most destitute of, of everyone on, on the city. Sometimes when our animals are really, really hungry, we go down to Jerry's yacht. These fabulous lifestyles are accessible only to those who've been willing to sacrifice it all. Stay tuned for more Lifestyles of the Poor and Destitute after this commercial break. Uncertain times, worried about a run on the banks, First National Bank of Mattress has everything that you're looking for in a place where you can stash your cash. The First National Bank of Mattress. In uncertain times, we've got your back.